The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration for leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning, this is Kate. How does our past inform our future and what does our educational system owe the young people of today? And what does the University of the South have to teach us about the future? These are just three of the questions we're going to be exploring today with my guest, Dr. John McArdle. Honoring the past, envisioning the future is our topic. And John McArdle, who's currently the Vice Chancellor of Sewanee, the University of the South, um, is an old friend of mine who I had the pleasure of working with at Middlebury College when he was the president in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, Dr. McArdle is a distinguished historian and respected national leader in liberal arts education. He possesses a record of achievement as a scholar of the American South and is also a respected national figure in the public discussion about higher education and student life. I had the pleasure of working with uh, John as he was bringing forward a bold vision for Middlebury, and I've been very interested to follow him as he has left Middlebury and headed south, where he is now bringing forth um, yet another vision as the 16th Vice Chancellor at the University of the South. John, welcome this morning. Kate, it's great to be with you. Well, thank you for joining me. And, you know, as I've, I've really reflected on bringing visionaries to talk to our listeners, you are one who has been at the fore of my mind. Um, you're really the person whose work brought me into thinking about why leaders need to have visions and what it means to actually work for a visionary leader. And so I go back in my mind to the 90s when I was actually initially quite resistant as an alumna of Middlebury College to the Commons vision and the, the bigger vision that you were bringing forward with the board at that time. And it was really a process for me of sitting down with the proposal that you were making and asking myself, can I stand behind this? And you really gave me the opportunity to do that. So I want to thank you because certainly that work has changed the course of my life and brought me into this um, career of helping leaders bring vision forward. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, I'm curious, John, what was it that gave you the impetus back at Middlebury to develop a, a vision in the way that you did? Uh, for the residential system in particular, Kate, as you'll recall, we had gone through a planning exercise that um, called for increasing the size of the, of the student body. Uh, and the target was something in the vicinity of 23, 2,350 students. And, and it occurred to me that uh, as we began to grow the student population, that was uh, an increase of about 400 students from where we were that before we just did that willy-nilly, we ought to take a step back and look at the best way to prepare ourselves for that increase uh, and also to make sure that the students who came uh, had uh, the best possible uh, collegiate experience, which, of course, includes uh, residential life. And I thought I recalled, and after doing some research, discovered I recalled correctly, that uh, both Harvard and Yale, at the time their enrollments hit 2,500, uh, went to the, the, the house and the college systems, uh, believing that um, once you get to that number or right around that number, uh, the notion that you can do everything as a single unit and uh, derive all the benefits as a single unit at least uh, becomes a question that needs to be, to be raised. And so uh, with that thinking in mind, uh, it seemed to me appropriate to at least put before the community the notion that smaller continuing residential communities uh, on the order of the, the, the house and college system uh, might be worthwhile for Middlebury to consider. And you'll remember we, we talked about several 
specific traits that these residential uh, commons might have, that they would have continuing membership, uh, that they would have a proximate faculty presence, uh, and that they would provide uh, dining. Uh, on the theory that education takes place around the clock and in all venues, students don't occupy separate spheres at different times of the day, uh, that interaction uh, across the generations is a good uh, and worthwhile thing, uh, that the Residential Liberal Arts College is probably best prepared to offer that kind of experience, uh, and that, in fact, uh, this was not unlike uh, the experience that previous generations of Middlebury students had had when the college was much uh, smaller. Uh, and, and so uh, going forth with that seemingly bold and radical vision uh, was a challenge. But uh, once people began to think about it, uh, and particularly once alumni who knew the college of an earlier time said, hmm, you know what, this sounds a lot like the fraternity system, doesn't it? Continuing communities, uh, dining, uh, uh, and an adult uh, faculty presence, uh, this is more closely tied to our past and our understanding of the college than we may have first thought. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> you, 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 you know some it. of those buzzwords, too, right? <laughs> I sure do. And I remember those, the discussion about scale and the size of the community, growing the enrollment, maintaining the scale, um, bringing us closer together um, as, as smaller communities within a whole, and also being able to celebrate the diversity within each group. Um, exactly. So it was, it was, it was a very important, um, it was a very important message for us. And you know, I think one of the things that makes me call a bold vision is because um, our community was resistant to it, and yes, yet they were. <laughs> you and, and the board um, held held firm, and you know commissioned a couple of us to go out and really help you um, communicate this message, and also bring back the voices and perspectives of the community so that it could inform the vision as it went forward. Um, I'm curious as a leader. Um, you really stuck with it, and I and I would imagine perhaps a, a lesser leader might have um, backed down in the face of some of that re- early resistance. Um, what made you think? It, what? How did you stick with it? Is what I really want to know. Well, it was as you know, it wasn't easy, uh, and uh, there were always uh, uh, there was always some some resistance uh, to it. But uh, what you hope will take place. Uh, on a college campus in an academic environment uh, is reasoned and informed debate. Now, sometimes reach exceeds grasp on that topic, uh, but as time goes by, uh, if you can get people at least to take a step back and think about it, uh, there's, a, there's a reasonable chance that they'll embrace it. We also know that um, the closer one gets to home on a college campus, uh, the more conservative uh, the on-campus population becomes. It's all well and good to try to make dramatic change on the other side of the world, uh, but don't touch a thing uh, uh, right here close <laughs> to home. And, 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 and you, you, you wouldn't want it to be otherwise. The current generation of students, whatever that generation is, uh, likes to think that the college, the university, uh, has never more closely approximated perfection uh, than it is right now. Uh, and so any change is going to take us farther away from perfection rather than closer uh, to it. So don't change a thing. It's perfect the way it is. All that's understandable, and all that means you simply need to be, to be patient. Uh, history didn't begin the day I was born uh, or the day you came to campus, uh, and this place will be <laughs> here long after we're all gone. And so what is the best thing for the school now and, and, and going forward? And the, to me, one of the key moments, and I think this, we, all, we all like to have our, uh, our, our, our views uh, ratified by uh, people from away, uh, and when other schools started sending delegations up to Middlebury to visit uh, and to see what we were doing in residential life, and in some cases even to emulate it, I think that began also to convince people that uh, these 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 crazy folks on campus who were talking about this new system were not perhaps totally were still perhaps totally in command of their of their faculties, and that um, in fact that other schools were looking at us. Uh, might mean there was something good to be said for the vision we were we were promulgating. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly is validating. I remember sitting in um, Frank Kelly's office in Battelle, 
and talking with him about the Commons vision and as an alumna really articulating my very mixed feelings about the vision sort of in the early stages of it coming forth and before I really got involved with it. And Frank said to me, you know, he said, you have to understand this. He said, here's a, a Latin phrase for you, Ponta Rai. He said, it means everything moves and flows all the time. He said, then my name, I was going by Kathy at that time. He said, Kathy, he said, everything moves and flows all the time. He said, everything is always moving and changing. Change and movement is the natural order of things. And it was a revelation to me. I mean, when he said it, something in me clicked and I began to understand that um, whatever it was I was hanging on to, which really could only have been my four years at Middlebury, um, was in the past, actually, and that we were in an evolving uh, present toward a future that we would create. It was it was just a wonderful um, moment in time, and it really helped me get beyond the past and into the the new picture that you were painting for us. Well, that whole that whole period, I think, was a reminder that. Um Education takes place in the classroom. Yes, you study calculus and you study history and you study psychology and, 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 and all the rest. But uh, to have lively on-campus discussions about who we are, what we have been, and where we're headed is simply education in another form. And it's a process in which everyone can participate. And no, not everybody's going to agree. Uh, the worst or uh, the most important form of diversity, it seems to me, is, 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 is diversity of opinion. Uh, and we, we certainly experienced that. <laughs> During those uh, during those discussions, and I think it was it was healthy and um, educational in the best sense of the word. Yeah, and you know, and and um, in just a couple minutes before the break here, I wonder when you look back at that time, what do you see as your most significant accomplishment as the president of Middlebury College? It doesn't have to be one; it could be a couple. Uh, I well, there uh, there are uh, there are a number that I might identify, but um, let's take one that I think is probably within recent enough memory that um, it might be particularly illustrative. Uh, we all remember the economic downturn of 2008, but there was also a pretty significant dip right after 9-11. Endowments took a hit. Resources looked like they were going to be limited. The future looked uh, fairly uncertain. And we were in the midst of two construction projects, uh, one a new library and the other, the second of our residential commons. Uh, and there was some uh, substantial uh, opinion, including on the board of trustees, that we should shut those projects down uh, because um, of the uncertainty of the economy. And uh, the argument really turned on the question of whether a 200-year-old institution uh, should think and operate in the same way as a corporation, i.e. quarterly earnings reports, uh, and say to visitors, well, you know, um, see that idle construction site? Um, we had a bad quarter. We're 200 years old, and once we have a good quarter, we're going to resume this. But you should come here because we have the courage uh, to, uh, to shut down a project uh, when times get tough because we're, we're living in the present. Well, obviously, that argument makes no sense. And when you think of it that way, much of the concern and much of the seriousness of that position uh, disappeared, and we completed the projects, and, and that was a good thing. Uh, but uh, there is, I think... Uh, in an academic setting, and particularly in an academic setting where there is a lot of history surrounding it, uh, that uh, uh, the sweep of time, it, one thinks in very different, uh, in a very different way from the way one thinks on Wall Street. Not that one is right and one is wrong, but uh, each side needs to understand the other. That uh, academic institutions can't and haven't and shouldn't uh, live their lives and made their decisions from quarter to quarter. We need to take the much longer view. So when you think about this in terms of an accomplishment, it's really that you did take the longer view, stayed you with it. To. You have to. You have and, to. Uh, and, and then, uh, uh, as Shakespeare says, uh, uh, you, have, you have spoken, whether wisely or no, let the forest judge. Uh, let, let, let history <laughs> judge. Wonderful. That judgment will come long after we're gone. We're going to take a break right now. I'm speaking with Vice Chancellor John McArdle of the University of the South. We'll be right back. We're always 
Today's talk in business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Thank you for joining us today. This is Kate, and I want you to know that you can download this show and any other onto your iPod, and you can listen anytime. I'm speaking today about honoring the past and envisioning the future with university president and historian John McArdle. And John, today you're one, more than one year into serving as vice chancellor at Sewanee University of the South. Tell us about Sewanee and what you hope to accomplish there. Uh, Sewanee is an extraordinary place, Kate, and um, in in my view is perhaps still too well kept a secret. Though uh, I'm hoping to change that. My colleagues and I are working very hard to uh, to make that happen. Uh, we were founded by a group of ten uh, Episcopal bishops in the 1850s who believed that uh, the South needed a major comprehensive university uh, that only uh, the Episcopal Church could could pull it off. Uh, and that if the vision could be uh, achieved, uh, this would be really, and and this is not exaggerated at all, uh, the Harvard of the South. And so they they identified a a spot on the Cumberland Plateau in Tennessee, 10,000 acres. Uh, They envisioned a university that would have colleges of different sizes, a business school, a law school, a medical school, a school of theology, uh, truly to be the University of the South. Uh, and they raised a lot of money. Uh, at the time the Cornerstone was dedicated, uh, they had an endowment uh, of, that was half the size of Harvard's. So it was ambitious and, and it was happening. Uh, but uh, whatever they may have uh, possessed in vision, they, uh, they lacked in timing. Uh, because the uh, cornerstone dedication occurred in October of 1860. And, of course, a month later, Lincoln was elected and secession followed and the Civil War came soon after. And uh, what little was here on the mountain at that point was destroyed. Uh, and one might have thought that um, the vision was permanently uh, destroyed as well. But uh, in many ways, the more inspiring and, and visionary chapter in the story is the is the return in 1866 of Bishop Quintard and a group of supporters who thought that uh, well even though times are tough uh, the need for a university is even more acute than it was before and so they um, decided that they were going to 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 refound the university uh, Quintard goes over to England and uh, uh, gets uh, books for the library from uh, English universities donated he raises funds uh, for the university. Uh, it's a tough, hard scrabble existence for a very, very long time. 
but uh, the dream survives, albeit in modified form. Today we're a, uh, an undergraduate college of uh, 1,440 students, a school of theology of about 75 seminarians, uh, graduate programs in letters, uh, uh, a, a writer's conference that is well known, uh, and uh, 13,000 acres, of which the vast majority are still pristine wilderness. So um, time uh, has uh, altered the vision, but uh, the vision is here for all to see on the Cumberland Plateau. You know, last October, in your installation address at the university, you spoke about honoring the past, celebrating the present, and anticipating the future. And to me, that seems to be kind of your MO, John, as a university leader, to sell, to honor the past, celebrate the present, anticipate the future. And I'd love if you could um, tell us why is this approach important? Well, I think it's it it is if anything, Kate, it's a it's a subset of a of a larger approach to leadership that seems to me uh, uh, necessary for anyone who is um, given the opportunity to to be the leader of an organization, uh, and that is the the need the 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 imperative. Uh, to understand the culture of the place into which one is is moving, uh, there's a fairly high uh, mortality rate uh, among university presidents who presidents who who move from place to place uh, because the skills are not necessarily and certainly not automatically uh, portable. What works in one place doesn't necessarily work in another place. No two cultures mm-hmm. are the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what one has to try to understand and embrace and articulate and celebrate uh, are those things that make a particular institution uh, distinctive uh, and to build upon those things. Now, as an historian, uh, I believe that uh, the history is uh, perhaps the, 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 the chief component uh, in arriving at that understanding. Uh, and so when one comes to a place that bears the name of the University of the South, uh, one needs to be very careful, first of all, to understand the culture one is uh, embracing, and then second, to make clear uh, how the history of the institution, 150 years old, relates to the present. And so what you find yourself saying uh, are things like, we once were but no longer are the University of the Old South. That's true. We once were but no longer are the University of the Confederate South. Uh, that's true. Uh, we once were but no longer are the University of the 1920s South, the University of the 1960s South. Uh, we're no more interested in refighting the cultural wars of the 1960s here than we are in refighting the Civil War of the, of the 1860s. Uh, all of those things mm. have shaped us. All of those things have left their mark on this institution. Uh, but properly understood, it seems to me, they are, they are reminders, uh, to use a theological term, uh, they're reminders of what it means to live in a fallen world. Uh, they're reminders of the limits of uh, human pride, uh, and at the same time, of the possibilities of, of human effort. And so uh, it is at once uh, humbling, uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, encouraging to think that uh, uh, we might uh, build on what our predecessors have done and learned and experienced uh, and look forward to make ourselves a 21st century university that speaks to the needs of students and families who are here now uh, and whom we hope to attract here in the future. But you're all part of that continuum. You're all part of that culture. Uh, it shapes you. That history is all around you. Uh, you try to deny it. Uh, separate yourself from it or overlook it at great peril. Uh, neither do you uh, 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 wallow in it. Uh, you, you understand it, you build on it, and you stand on the gigantic shoulders of those who've come before you. You know, that really rings true, actually, for me in the work that I do with um, with corporations, with nonprofits, with uh, with schools, and inevitably, whenever we want to move into a discussion of the future, we really have to begin by telling ourselves the story of the past. Every, we need a process. Actually, we bring forward a process that allows us all to tell that story and share that story and capture that story in some way. And until we've done that, it's it's almost impossible actually to move into a future focused discussion inevitably if we don't do the honoring of the past piece um when we go to talk about the future people say oh but remember (laughs) this is how we are this is the way we are you don't understand you know so i have found that in the work of of um 
co-creating the future with with the client organizations I work with, this step about remembering the past is an, is an essential piece. Well, you will remember probably uh, some of those retreats uh, that we we did at, at at Middlebury back in the in the '90s, and mm-hmm. uh, the the down in the weeds mentality. Uh, which remembered every faculty vote and who voted on which side and how it <laughs> turned out. Uh, well, yeah, okay, but um, we, we, we can't continue to uh, revert to those old debates and those old alliances and those uh, uh, dead questions. Uh, we need to look forward. We learn from that, but we don't, we don't keep returning, uh, returning to them. And uh, knowing the history, knowing the culture of a place uh, is is vital, and anyone who uh, would aspire to leadership needs to understand that wherever it is he or she may be going, uh, it's not for everyone, uh, and it may not be for you. Uh, in an academic institution, to try to be all things to all people, all students, all faculty, is to be nothing to anyone. Uh, and so uh, acknowledging that, and at the same time trying to be as good and strong and true a version of yourself institutionally, seems to me to be the surest road to uh, success. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think, you know, the the way you, you said that last piece about being a truer, stronger version of yourself um, is being a guiding idea, really, for the future. And um, I'm curious, what's what do you think is dangerous about trying to replicate other highly regarded institutions versus becoming a better, stronger, truer version of yourself? Well, as an exercise, ultimately, I believe in futility and, and, and frustration. I, I mean, I, I have resisted every uh, uh, observation that uh, I've come to Sewanee in order to make it more like Middlebury. Well, no. Uh, uh, if I wanted to do that, if I tried to do that, I couldn't. Uh, and, in, and in attempting to do that, why would any student want to come uh, to a place that was trying to be more like someplace else? Uh, go to that place instead. Uh, uh, build on your traditional strengths. Uh, look at those things that make you distinctive. Uh, and resist the temptation to think that you can either... Um, replicate uh, where you have been or try to turn where you have come into something other than what it has been and what it is. That's a, I think that's a, that's a fundamental but probably uh, too frequently made mistake. So how do, you, um, how do you combine innovation with that path that you just described? You know, where do you bring in innovation? Is it innovating around what you're already good at or do you advocate bringing some new things in, too? Well, in that, in that respect, where the individual is concerned, as for the institution, I think it's a matter of timing. Uh, we all know that individuals go through different seasons in their lives, uh, and institutions go through different seasons in, in their lives. Uh, institutions cannot be uh, uh, constantly, frantically trying to innovate. Uh, neither should they embrace the mentality of always trying to uh, 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 trim back uh, and retrench. Uh, there are rhythms, there are seasons, and some people are do better and perform better uh, in one of those settings than they do in another. So when an institution is looking for leadership, it needs to be as honest as it can be about where it is in that cycle, uh, which of those rhythms are about to be heard, and then try to find somebody who becomes a good fit for the institution at that particular uh, moment in time. Uh, that's why I say the skills may to some degree be portable, uh, but uh, the skills have to match what an institution uh, needs. Uh, and success in one place does not in any way guarantee uh, success uh, in the next, uh, any more than success at one level of operation or leadership in an institution guarantees success at another level or a different level. Uh, we, 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 we too readily assume, I, I, I think, that that can be the case. Uh, and, and, and so, in my own case, this has seemed to be a good fit because this institution clearly communicated uh, that it was ready to uh, try some things, to do some things, and to move itself to the next level. And uh, I thought I had something that I might be able to offer, and it's been a great experience thus far. I'm speaking with Dr. John McArdle, Vice Chancellor of the University of the South, and we're talking about how you can honor the past, envision the future, 
and take some bold steps in the present to get there. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what does the University of the South have to teach us about the future. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Tune in to Tom Says for practical solutions that you can use in your life. Whether it's information you can use for business, spiritual awareness, health, or personal issues, you'll want to listen to this life-changing program hosted by Tom Gerbic. Tom will also invite you to participate by calling in or sending emails. There's no topic that's taboo. With Tom's life experiences, you'll find that a weekly visit can be truly inspiring. Tom Says can be heard on the Voice America Variety Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern with a weekly rebroadcast on the Voice America Business Channel. Did you know that the number one concern of American business is the ability to attract and retain qualified workers? Yet millions of qualified American workers with disabilities are sitting on the sidelines. Disabilities at Work Radio focuses on businesses and their workforce needs and also offers other topics of interest to people with disabilities, their families, and supporters. Join Disabilities at Work Radio every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hi, this is Kate Ebner, and if you have questions for John McArdle, please email them. We'd love to take some questions as we're having our conversation today. Um, John, we were talking before the break about uh, the relationship of the, the past to the future. Uh, George Santayana, the philosopher, wrote that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's kind of an often misquoted um, statement. But you seem to learn history and speak from history in order to create a desirable future that's rooted in that history rather than necessarily treating history as just a cautionary approach. So I'm wondering if you could tell us, what do you think is the opportunity at hand today for Suwannee? Well, I think that uh, to, to, to be able to, to communicate that understanding uh, does convey an, an authority that doesn't necessarily make one unassailable, but at least communicates that the, 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 the person advocating a change uh, does have some knowledge of the context, the framework, the history of the, of the institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at our particular moment here at the university, we are, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think, we are too well kept a secret. Those who know us know us well, love us to death, and constitute an extraordinarily uh, committed group of, of alumni. Uh, but uh, there, there are too many uh, others who, 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 who need to know who need to know more. Uh, one of our challenges here, uh, in addition in addition to that, or perhaps alongside that, uh, I think is one that faces the higher education community more generally, uh, and that is the question of accessibility and affordability. Uh, the landscape changed in 2008. We all know that. Um, when I first arrived here a little over a year ago, uh, I discovered that um, we were losing more students 
uh, in head-to-head admissions competition uh, to the universities of Georgia and Tennessee uh, than to uh, other uh, private, uh, independent liberal arts colleges. Um, that was a discovery. That was not something I'd expected, uh, and it forces you to ask the question. Now, there are a lot of reasons why a family and a young person might choose a large flagship university, not the least of which is you can get a very good education at such a place. But you also have to assume that at least in some of those instances, uh, price uh, is, is a factor. Uh, and in fact, the higher education community for much of the last generation has engaged in an approach to uh, setting its fees, uh, an approach that's that's known as high tuition, high discount, uh, which means simply you charge as much as you possibly can, uh, you leave as few dollars on the table as possible, uh, and then you discount uh, as necessary to attract the students you want to attract. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we're all, uh, in one way or another, uh, involved in that process. Now, where that discounting involves meeting the need of students who otherwise couldn't attend your university, uh, that's a fine and noble and appropriate, nev- never mind just and efficient, uh, way of allocating resources. Uh, but more and more institutions were uh, wandering away from need-based financial aid uh, into, a, into a new form of aid, which uh, I think has very unfortunately been termed merit aid, uh, as though some but not all of those students receiving uh, scholarship assistance were, were meritorious. They're all meritorious, every single one of them. Uh, I think the more appropriate use uh, the more appropriate definition of that approach is non-need financial aid. It's not between need and merit. It's between need and non-need. Uh, there's a reason why that has happened. Uh, it, is, it, it is a belief that uh, by uh, discounting your fee uh, generously as necessary, uh, you can recruit stronger students to come to your campus. Uh, but in terms of allocating um, limited resources, it is not only inefficient, uh, in my view, it is, it is unjust. Uh, and we were seeing here, there was a, a, the balance between uh, need and non-need aid was not what I thought and what my colleagues uh, came to see as, as, as appropriate. So what did we do? Well, long story short, or a longer story somewhat shorter, mm-hmm. uh, the regents decided a year ago that, that rather than try to fiddle around the edges of this, uh, or rather than simply take the fee up by another 5%, uh, as we did um, and every place else does every year, we were going to cut our tuition and fees by 10%. The hope being that our discount rate would come down. Clearly, if you're charging less, there will be less need. Uh, Secondly, uh, because there were already um, students and families possessing discount coupons uh, of more than 10%, uh, they would wind up, even if they were on merit financial aid, uh, they would wind up paying less next year than they're paying this year. Maybe not 10% less, but still less. And over the course of a student cycle, uh, we could reallocate our financial aid resources more to meet need. Um, That was a controversial decision. Uh, It got us a lot of coverage. I'm happy to say most of it positive. Uh, It also also produced a freshman class of record size. Uh, It did bring down the discount rate by about six percentage points. Uh, It has resulted in visits uh, running 60% ahead of last year. Uh, most importantly, though, I think it has placed the issue in front of the public and in front of our colleagues in higher education uh, to ask them the question, when is this cycle of high tuition and high discount going to stop? Uh, when are we going to realize that the world has changed for our families probably permanently since 2008? And if we're not careful, we're going to hit that ceiling and we're going to price ourselves out of the reach of the students and families we're trying to Track. That's why need-based financial aid is more important than ever, uh, and that's why a fee structure that makes it possible for as many young people as possible to come to the place they want to go rather than the place that offers them the most money uh, is appropriate for our time. Sorry for the long answer. 
Well, a passionate long answer and, a, as you say, a controversial long answer. I think that's um, an exciting statement to hear. Um, you know, I, I speak as one who benefited from financial aid in my own undergraduate education, and um, I, I suppose I speak for the many who in this climate will depend upon financial aid to get the kind of education that University of the South is offering. Um, I, I'm interested in Again, the stand that you took as a leader here, uh, reducing the cost of tuition, um, what, what was at stake? Well, um, certainly what was at stake in the short run was a potential budgetary shortfall because, yeah. um, because uh, Sewanee, like most other liberal arts colleges, while we're not wholly tuition dependent, uh, tuition makes up a significant part of our revenue. And we knew that um, by cutting tuition, we were, we were going to be bringing in less uh, revenue. Uh, we were, and, and, and I, I hasten to add that in describing what we did and why we did it, I'm not saying that this is something everybody else should do or should do in the same way uh, that we have done it. Uh, but we did have capacity for more students. Our, our enrollment target was 1,500, and we had not reached 1,500, so we could take more students without having to add additional um, infrastructure. Uh, and we had uh, reserves that uh, we could call upon in the short run to make up a budgetary shortfall. And we were hopeful that we would attract a larger class, uh, a higher net tuition revenue from that class, uh, and that those who support the university would be inspired to continue to give or perhaps give at a higher level to help us offset some of that uh, shortfall as well. Uh, well, all of those things uh, happened. Uh, the shortfall proved to be much less than we had anticipated, and reserves allowed us to, to cover it. So um, the, 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 the financial risk at stake, and here again is where it's so important to think in the longer term and not just year to year or quarter to quarter. Uh, and our regents uh, understood, uh, uh, comprehended, and embraced a notion that, that strategically over a five- or ten-year period, this is going to position our university in a much stronger place with financial aid based primarily on need, with a student body of larger size, which we can handle, uh, and with a, a, a greater prominence in the marketplace, uh, which recognizes that times have changed and that being the value proposition in higher education once thought to be a not-so-good thing, uh, is now a very good thing, uh, particularly if you're uh, the first to uh, occupy that niche. Our hope is that one way or another, the leadership that we have shown here at the University of the South will be emulated uh, elsewhere, uh, if for no other reason, that uh, our colleagues and peers will no longer be able to uh, shovel the large numbers of uh, merit aid dollars out the door to compete with us. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe they will, maybe they can, uh, but we like to think we've at least begun to change the game. John, this is a big question with about two minutes before we take a break. I'm curious to see what you can do in two minutes. But oh, I know. What is, uh, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean in the 21st century to be the University of the South? It means to build on our past, to understand that past, but to look ahead. Uh, it means, above all, I think, to, to, to recognize a kind of environmental stewardship broadly defined, which means not only uh, a, a care for uh, and an understanding of uh, the natural order, uh, but the way in which place shapes who you are and what you are. Uh, so, so a strong environmental studies program uh, on a 13,000-acre domain is, of course, a central part of that, uh, but it goes so far beyond that uh, because we are uh, named for a place here, not for a person. That's unusual. There aren't many institutions named for a place. Place matters. Uh, and so whether that place is Sewanee, whether that place is the South, uh, we believe that we have been shaped by that environment and that uh, that makes all the difference for this university and will make the difference for students uh, who come here. It will, con it will convey uh, both a becoming sense of humility uh, as well as a great sense of possibility. 
Thank you so much. My guest is Dr. John McArdle, Vice Chancellor of the University of the South. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, and we'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm delighted to let you know we've had a question come in um, for our guest, John McArdle. So, John, our listeners want to know what advice you have for leaders who are looking to inspire and motivate a staff or a community around a vision. So how do you create buy-in? Boy, that's a great question. Um, Part of it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, and it has to do with uh, institutional fit. Uh, If the fit is good, then the leader has already realized that uh, he or she is at a place where one can be oneself. One doesn't have to uh, reinvent oneself. One doesn't have to try to be something that one isn't. Uh, One can be authentic. And there's nothing more uh, conducive to uh, uh, successful leadership, it seems to me, than authenticity. Uh, And then that relates to, to this question. Uh, if one is able to be authentic, if one is in a place where one can truly be oneself and not have to act out a role, uh, one should be able, uh, with one's colleagues and associates and in a broader community, uh, to connect, uh, to relate, to explain uh, in a way that is not um, sermon-like or rhetorical, though a certain amount of rhetoric is necessary and even helpful, but in a way that gives confidence in those people uh, that because of that authenticity, uh, what this guy is saying may not in the end be something I agree with, but it's at least worth listening to. It's at least worth considering. I need to at least take it seriously uh, because of that, of that fit. So, so be yourself, be authentic, bring your message forward as you. Exactly and hopefully right. you ha- you've got enough trust and enough credibility established that people can recognize um, that sincerity, that integrity, and respond of kind. Well, they can also tell when you're acting. They can all, you, may not think, you may not think they can tell when you're faking it, uh, but most people eventually can. Uh, and that's, again, it gets back to this, this question of um, a fit. Good. Well, I think that's I think that's excellent advice, and it's it's actually can feel risky. I think when you're in a leadership role and you are 
personally putting a stake in the ground for something as a leader, um, you know, just being yourself and taking your stand. And, and listeners, I would say also opening yourself up to whatever comes next. Part of being authentic is not trying to control outcomes all the time. I, I, right. That's right. It's seldom a straight line. Um, very seldom a straight line. If you're expecting a straight line, you're in for, you're in for frustration. Yes. Yes. Well, there are a couple. There's so many things I want to talk about with you, and in the remaining time, we have just a few moments. Um, but I want to point out a couple of things that you do, John, um, to the people who are listening in our audience, because I think they're really relevant um, for their own leadership. Um, one is when I read your installation address, I found that as you did for Middlebury, you referred meaningfully and at some length to the past. Then you actually described the future you see for the University of the South. And in this speech, you actually walked your listeners through a campus of the future as if it were in the present. You used the present tense to say, mm. you know, walking through this campus, I see, we see, we experience, and you use that present tense. And I want to point that out because I think that you as a leader have a unique orientation toward time. This probably is the historian in you. Um, But I hear you accessing the past, presenting the future, using the present tense to bring it to life, and then calling people to action to create what they really want. And I think this awareness of time is a real distinction of your leadership. Um, You know, you talk about honoring memory, but not letting us become overly nostalgic or sort of wallowing back in the past. And I just want to, I want to point out for those listening that this orientation to time, where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we going? And how does that all stay connected? That seems to be one of the lessons I think, John, you're bringing us today. Well, that is the that is the tragic flaw of the historian, perhaps. But um, <laughs> but but uh, you, I think you also put your finger on an important point, maybe even a qualifier. Uh, I, nostalgia um, won't get you very far or allow you to accomplish very much. There's nothing wrong with nostalgia, but nostalgia needs an offset. Uh, and what I've, what I try to say is that, that, that hope, hope is nostalgia's antidote. Uh, and that, uh, hope clearly looks to the future. Uh, hope is obviously aspirational. Uh, and so, um, you, you, you can't and mustn't forget where you've been and, uh, even remembering the good times. But, uh, don't spend your life trying to recreate those good times. Uh, look ahead. Try to figure out uh, Gretzky, uh, the, the, the great hockey player, wonderful statement. Somebody said, Wayne Gretzky, what makes you so successful on the ice? He said, well, he said, the secret. The secret is not to skate to where the puck is, it's to skate to where you think the puck is going. Um, what a great definition of leadership. Try to, try to skate to where the, the puck is going. And um, you, you may not always get there at the same time, but at least you're thinking in the right mode. I have saved a key question for last, and this is a, this is um, uh, could be its own hour long conversation. I know you're very strong. Oh, I know what's uh, coming. Has very strong stand. Yeah, you know what's coming. <laughs> I'm going to frame it broadly, and you can take this where you will. Um, the question I have for you, John, is: What is it that, that we, the educators of today, owe the young people of today? Well, that is that we could spend a whole hour on that one. Let me let me try to respond as succinctly as I can because I know time is limited. Uh, I think that the most important, alt- arguably the most important uh, education uh, we can provide young people uh, is to prepare them to make responsible decisions as citizens. Um, there would it would be hard to frame the mission of the liberal arts college in more comprehensive or simplistic terms than that. Our goal is to produce young people who can make informed and responsible decisions as citizens in their community. Uh, And while there is certainly uh, uh, an academic component to that, the academic component is probably at the core of that. You will be a more informed citizen if you know history, if you know something about biology, if you've studied psychology, of course. But also has to do with all those things that take place outside the classroom. 
And as you probably know, and this is why I said here it comes, uh, I've been involved over the last few years uh, with an effort to engage the public in an informed and dispassionate discussion over the effects of the 21-year-old drinking age. Uh, But that's only a part of what I'm talking about. Some of your listeners may have seen the Ken Burns documentary last night on prohibition. That takes us back to the Santa Yana quote that you used earlier in our our discussion. Uh, It is a reminder that attempts to prohibit uh, attempts that are unnatural uh, are doomed to failure. They have unintended consequences. Drinking got worse during prohibition. Tell somebody no, and uh, all you're going to do is drive the problem into uh, more risky, more clandestine, uh, and all, uh, perhaps more, much more dangerous uh, environments. That's a part of the larger issue. I don't want to dwell on the drinking age, but I think that that's one place where on college campuses we're seeing a disconnect between our attempt to treat them as the adults, the law says, in every other respect that they are, to prepare them to make responsible decisions, and yet simultaneously to pretend as if a law that bears no relationship to what they know is going on in all the rest of the world, to what they know is going on in their own lives in spite of what the law says, uh, denies us an opportunity to educate uh, and even more uh, risks uh, infantilizing. Uh, Young people need to learn how to make responsible decisions about alcohol as well. And an environment that says uh, simply no, but that when you wake up, on the day you turn 21, you will miraculously know how to make responsible decisions is, is no different from throwing the keys to the family car at a young person on the day that young person reaches legal driving age and says, here are the keys, there's the car, uh, you go figure out how to do it. Maybe your friends can help you. Uh, and I'd love to as your parent, but if I did, uh, we'd both be arrested and uh, uh, our state would forfeit 10% of its highway funds, which is exactly the way the drinking laws operate now. It's nonsensical. It's counterproductive. It's not a problem of traffic safety. It is a problem of preparing young people to make responsible decisions. That's what liberal education is all about. That's the way in which we should think about how the young people that have committed four years of their lives to us uh, should be educated and we should create an environment in which Daniel Webster's combination, liberty on the one hand, wholesome restraint on the other, defines the way they live their lives and prepares them for lives of citizenship. Liberty without restraint is chaos. Restraint without liberty is oppression. It's a fine balance. It's a delicate balance. It's often not perfect, but If over time they can learn responsibly how to exercise freedom and the restraint that comes when necessary comes from within rather than from above or from outside, they will be productive citizens. They will be good parents. They'll be prepared to live lives of responsibility and accountability. John, it's been an honor to have you on the show today. I wish you and your university well as you envision and make real the 21st century Southern University. Um, also really applaud you for the bold stands you've taken on the drinking age and other positions and your equation about opportunity plus responsibility plus accountability um, for our young people. Thank you for joining me. This is Kate Ebner. This has been Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the KidStar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. If you're one of a lucky few that never have to worry about your position or you just prefer to work for someone else, this message is not for you. If you are worried about future job markets, would like an opportunity to add full-time revenue to your bottom line for part-time work, or have ever wanted to own your own business, you'll want to hear this. Johnny B's Entertainment, the leader in mobile disc jockey entertainment for Arizona over the past 25 years, is expanding its operation nationally and would like to discuss your market's potential for expansion with you as a local owner. Whether economic times are good or bad, people will continue to get married, have birthdays, anniversaries, and corporate parties that require an entertainer. And Johnny B's can provide everything to get you set up with your own exclusive area, including the know-how for you to become profitable almost immediately. Call 1-888-282-8220 or go to johnnybees.net. That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-B-S dot net. Or call 1-888-282-8220 for answers on how you can acquire a turnkey operation in an exciting and lucrative industry today. There's a course offered on 7th Wave Network that you never saw offered in college. One that provides information on how to transform ancient wisdom teachings into everyday life. You'll learn how to create... The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Leadership Development News. Pro- 